I feel like at the very beginning of this sermon, as I was working out it, I felt like I needed to make a little disclaimer before we just jump right into the uh, material. And, and the disclaimer is just this. Uh, there's a lot of things that I believe about God, a lot of things I believe to be true about who he is and what he's like. And two of those things, two of the primary things are that, that God is good and that God is kind. And tonight, I, I ask for your grace as I attempt to talk about what I consider to be one of the most difficult subjects to preach about well. See, tonight we're going to be talking about suffering and pain, that, the common experience of much of humanity. And here's what I know, as, as a therapist, as a pastor, and as a friend, I have walked with a lot of people through a lot of different types of pain. And I've heard many accounts of someone being deeply wounded or deeply hurt by the words of a careless preacher or by the words of a careless Christian friend. And what I also know to be true is that there are some of you that are in this room tonight that are in the middle of some very difficult things. You're in the middle of suffering. You're in the middle of pain. You're in the middle of sorrow. And what I, what I would ask of you tonight is just that you would extend grace to me. I stand up here just as one of you. I'm, I'm just a human being who's doing the best I can to figure out this problem of pain and suffering in my life and in the world and reconciling that with what I know to be true about God. And so I believe that he's good and I believe that he's kind. And if anything that I say tonight communicates anything other than that, I would just ask for your grace. And if anything I say tonight comes across as like trite or like just shallow or fluffy or anything like that, would you, would you just come talk to me? Like, come tell me. Because I, I, I give you my word, that's not how I intend to come across. And so um, that's my disclaimer before we jump in. I, I, I give you a reminder of where we are. You know, we've been in this series, Everyday Discipleship, since about February. And in this series, we've kind of been asking the question, or what, what are the practicalities of our faith and how do those practicalities work themselves out in our everyday life, right? And so we started off talking about us and God. What are the practical ways that outside of Sunday we, we connect with our Father? How do, we, how do we hear from God? How do we spend time with Him in prayer? What does it look like to have a two-way relationship with Him to where we hear from Him and we go and we do the things that we're hearing? And then we talked about the practicalities of our faith when it comes to us doing life together as the body of Jesus. What does it look like for us to journey well together, to carry one another's burdens, to love one another well? And then we kind of, this last part of the series has been about what does it look like? What are the practicalities of our faith as we attempt to live out our faith in the world out there beyond these four walls? What does it look like to live as the people of Jesus? And we started in John 14 and where, where Jesus makes this picture where he says, hey, listen, the hope of the world is me living in you. And that we, the followers of Jesus, believe that the Spirit in us is how Jesus is going to let the world know about God's love. And then last week, we talked about the importance of witnessing through speaking, the importance of witnessing about the power and the glory of God by speaking about what we see and what we have seen. And tonight, we're going to talk about sharing our faith by suffering, sharing our faith in our suffering how even in our suffering, even in our pain, we get to point the world to God. And I hope you see that not only am I shoulder with talking about a, a difficult topic like suffering and pain, but I also have to talk about how often the way that we as followers of Jesus walk through our suffering has the latent potential to point the world to the goodness of God, that even when it doesn't feel like it, even in the midst of our pain, there's this hidden potential to point people to the goodness of God. 
I was th- as I was thinking through this idea this week, I just kept thinking about a good friend of mine who very recently back in February lost his mom after a two and a half year battle with cancer. You know, in 2013, she was diagnosed with cancer and she did all the things. That, if you've ever journeyed with someone through cancer, you know what that road is like with chemotherapy and radiation. And um, the thing about this woman, my friend's mom, is that the way that she journeyed through this battle was just so significant and unique and really intriguing. Her and her husband invited people in in a radical way to be a part of their journey with them. And I'll never forget my friend. We would touch base every now and then and say, how's your mom? And he would tell me more. And I remember one night we were talking and he just said, he said, man, my mom is just blowing my mind. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, here she is in the middle of her suffering, middle of, of, of chemotherapy and, and radiation where her body is hurting and she's aching and she gets our family together, me and my siblings and my dad. And, and she says, listen, listen, I need you guys to know something that no matter how this thing turns out, I really do believe that it's a win-win. And they're all like, what? And she says, listen, if God comes down and heals me, or if by the, the, the miracle of modern medicine I am healed and cured, then it's a win. Because I get more time on earth with my husband and my kids and my grandkids. And she says, but if I die, if the Lord takes me, she's like, it's a win. Because she trusted so completely in the promises of Jesus and the goodness of God and the goodness of Jesus that if she died, she'd still get to be with Jesus. And there's something about that that is just un- unbelievable and kind of unique. And I know if, if you're not a believer, if you're not a person of faith, then that kind of thinking sounds a little bit like pie in the sky. It sounds like you're living in denial, you're living in a, in a dream world. But, but here's the thing, the way that this woman journeyed through her battle with cancer was magnetic. People were drawn to her. They were drawn to her husband as they invited people in to see the way that they pressed through the suffering and pressed through the pain while also putting their faith in God. And you know, six months before she died, she wrote her own funeral. She wrote her own funeral because she said she wanted people to see the glory of her God and not just her suffering. And when she did die, when she had her funeral, they actually webcasted her funeral service live because people from all over the U.S. wanted to tune in and watch. And if you would have tuned into her funeral, you would have seen two sentiments at work. You would have seen friends and family who were grieving and mourning and hurting and lamenting at the loss of their loved one. And the other sentiment you would have seen is that of worship. You would have seen people in the same space, the same place, both grieving and worshiping, both mourning and lamenting and acting in faith at the same time. I think too often Christianity is presented as a faith where we have to choose between lament and complaint or faith and worship as if those two experiences are are polarized or polar opposites. And tonight, I want us just to take a look at Jesus and how Jesus dealt with suffering and with pain. And I think that we'll see as we look to Jesus that we, we find not only a way to endure suffering, but we find that as his followers, we actually become a light post to a world that is lost and covered in pain and suffering. And so we find ourselves, we're going to start in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and I'll I'll tell you kind of what's been going on up to this point in verse 33. We're jumping right into the middle of the crucifixion story of Jesus. So before, before verse 33, here's what's happened. Jesus, while spending time alone in a garden praying with his friends, he is betrayed by one of his closest friends who hands him over to be executed. 
and then his 11 other closest friends completely abandon him and leave him alone. Then he's handed over and he's falsely accused. He's falsely tried. In the middle of that false trial, he is slapped. He is punched in the face. They spit in his face. He is beat. They flog him. They whip him to the point where Jesus has open wounds in his, on his back. And then he is forced to carry what would have been excruciatingly heavy pieces of lumber up a hill. And when he gets to the top of that hill, they lay him down on that very same lumber and they put nails through his wrists and through his ankles and they lift him up to hang there on these pieces of wood in excruciating pain until the life has slipped out of him. Jesus knew suffering. Jesus knew pain. And in verse 33, we jump in right in the middle of this, Jesus hanging on the cross, and this is what Mark says. He says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And they said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, He said, surely this man was the son of God. You know, this this week as I looked at this portion of the story, the, the centurion is really the one that stood out to me. You know, if you read through the Gospels, The Gospels are the the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's four different accounts of the life of Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find many accounts of people who are moved to faith in God and faith in Jesus because of the way that he lived. But in this story, we find the only account in the Gospels of a man that was moved to faith in Jesus because of the way that he died. And as I thought about that, as I thought about this centurion standing there looking Jesus in the eye as the life slipped out of his body, I I wonder how many different men or women had this centurion seen hanging on a cross? How many murderers or thieves or bandits or insurrectionists or or how many other falsely accused people had this centurion stood at the base of their cross waiting for them to die so that he could get on with his work and watch them die and yet there's something about this poor homeless carpenter from Nazareth that makes this centurion proclaim a statement of faith that I guarantee he'd never stated before. He said, surely this man was the Son of God, what was it in the way that Jesus died that moved him so? I think we find a clue to what moved this man when we start looking at the statements that Jesus made from the cross. You know, all the writers of the gospel record some different things that Jesus said while he was in the middle of his suffering. Mark only records one of the sayings of Jesus, and it's what we saw back in verse 34 where he has this phrase in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and it just means this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Often we read that verse and what it sounds like, it sounds like Jesus making an allegation against his God who has not come through for him when he needed him. It sounds like a son who was calling out to his father who did not show up when he was supposed to show up and did not rescue him when he needed rescuing. But in reality, this is not what Jesus is doing at all. 
See, this, this sentence that Jesus speaks, it is a quote directly from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalm 22, and it was not uncommon in Jesus' day for rabbis and teachers if they were referencing a psalm to just reference the first sentence of that psalm, and by doing so, they were referencing the entirety of that psalm. And so Jesus, hanging on the cross, he cries out in this sentence, referencing a psalm that many that were standing there would have known, some would not have known it, but we have the benefit of having the psalm with us today. It's like Jesus looking at those who are watching him die. He gave them a clue to the way that he walked through suffering and the way that he experienced suffering. And we get to look into that clue today. Look in Psalm 22. This is page 381 if you have one of our Bibles. In Psalm 22, let's just look at the first two verses to start. David was writing this psalm, and you'll notice as we read through different parts of it, it almost at times sounds word for word like a description of the crucifixion of Jesus. Starting in verse 1, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And so here in Psalm 22, you find David in the midst of anguish, and in the midst of his anguish, he has this unbelievably raw, honest, and vulnerable, authentic cry to God. God, where are you in the middle of my pain when I need you? Where are you? Where are you? And so in the first two verses, we see what sounds like David accusing God, making allegations against God, complaining to God, but then look what happens in verse three. He says, yet you, O Lord, are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. It was in you that our ancestors put their trust, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, and they were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Can you feel the, the kind of the spiritual dissonance that's happening here? That in one breath, David is crying out to God, saying, God, where are you in the middle of the moment when I need you the most? Where are you? And then in the next breath, he's saying, but you, O oh God, are trustworthy. You, O oh God, are the one that is enthroned above Israel. You are the one that is almighty. You are the one that has acted on behalf of your people. And as you read through the psalm, you're going to feel this, this pattern. It's like an A, B, A, B pattern where A is complaint or lament to God. And then B is a claiming of God's character. You see a complaint and a lament to God. And then a claiming of God's character. You keep reading, look in verse 6. He, he switches back to just acknowledging a complaint of his situation. He says, but I am a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Almost a word-for-word -word quote what people were saying to Jesus. And so here again, we see a complaint, but look in verse nine, he has his complaint, and then he says, yet, or but, you, Lord, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. And then he switches back again. You see the A pattern coming in again. 
He keeps going. Look in verse 16. He says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and they pierce my feet and all my bones are on display and people stare and they gloat over me. They, they divide my clothes amongst them and they cast lot for my garment. And look at verse 19. I love it. He says, but you, Lord, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. And he keeps on going. Look in verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. And he breaks out into what is this an all-out chorus of praise in the midst of his very suffering. And he ends it in verse 30. He says, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And they will proclaim his righteousness declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. We read through Psalm 22 and we see this back and forth of a, a, a commentator, a, a commentary on his circumstance, on his pain and his anguish, but then immediately a, a claiming of God's character. And it's as if Jesus was saying to those who were standing before him and as if Jesus is saying to us because we have his words, he's saying, listen, suffering and pain are not the opposite or the antithesis of worship and faith. Your pain, your lament, your cries of anguish, they are not the opposite of worship and faith. There is room in the Christian existence, there is room in the Christian experience for doubt and for grieving and for mourning and for pain and lament. Ours as followers of Jesus is not an existence of having to pretend that everything is okay all of the time. The gathering of God's people, this place where we are right now, is not a place for plastic smiles and false optimism. You know, one of the things I love most about our, our church, I've, I've found ethos, before I was ever even on staff, I found ethos to be a place where I could be authentic, where people could be real about where they were. They didn't have to pretend that everything was okay all the time. And I love that we have developed an environment where it's safe to be authentic, this environment of authenticity. It's like we have learned that voicing complaint or lament in the midst of suffering is not the opposite of having faith. Instead, Jesus models for us how we keep our faith in the midst of our suffering and how we keep our faith in the midst of our lament, how we keep our faith in the midst of our complaint without plummeting over the cliff into cynicism or nihilism where we think that all things are meaningless and we don't believe in anything. He says, listen, the way that you do this, the way that you keep your faith in the middle of suffering is that you lean on the story of God. You lean on the story of God. Let, let God's track record speak for itself. Let it mean something. We have to lean on our story as followers of Jesus. This was why the Israelites, when you read through the Old Testament, they, they told the story of the Exodus over and over and over and over again. They were reminding themselves of this moment in history where God came down and rescued his people from the bondage of slavery. So every time they hit a hard point, they cried out to God. That's what David is doing in verses three through five. He says, listen, you are the God who my ancestors trusted and know that you act for them and you rescued them. This is why we at Ethos tell the story of the cross and the empty tomb. We will tell this story over 
and over and over and over and over and over again because at the cross in the empty tomb we find the historical story of the God who came. The God who didn't stay at a distance in the midst of human suffering but the God who put on a human body and entered into our suffering with us. You know, because the story of the cross is true, because the, the empty tomb is true, we never have to question whether or not God sees us or whether or not he loves us. But we have the freedom in the midst of this love from God to express our complaint, to express our anguish. And then we turn and we tell ourselves the story of the God who loves us. We tell ourselves the story of the God who suffers with us. We tell ourselves the story of the God who conquers suffering by triumphing even over death. And so what does this look like in real life? You know, I, one of my biggest fears in preaching this was that people would hear me saying, hey, it's okay to say, oh, this is really hard. And then you just have to tell yourself, it's okay, Jesus is alive, I think I'm okay now. Like the reality is that, that suffering is sometimes stretched out. My friend, who I told you the story at the very beginning about his mom, the reality is they are still grieving the loss of their mother. And his dad is still grieving the loss of his wife. But what it looks like is in the middle of that, they can say, oh God, why, where were you when my mom died? And yet God, I know that you are near, I know that you see me, I have seen it in the cross. God, I'm still alone and I'm still suffering and I'm still in sorrow, but God, I know that you love me. It is this back and forth, this, this the reality of walking in the tension of knowing that even in our suffering, God is good. Even in our suffering, God has conquered suffering and there is hope beyond the pain that we are in right now. And so we gather together as the body of believers. And in our midst, there will be people who are suffering and there will be people who are rejoicing. And this is why Paul writes in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, he says, listen, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Jesus knew, he knew that there was gonna be pain for us in this world. This is why in Matthew 5, the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, he says, listen, don't hide from the hard feelings. Don't hide from the pain. Don't hide from the things that, that overwhelm you in this life. It's okay to enter into them just like I entered into them. Because when you entered into them, you are comforted because we gather together as the body of Jesus and when we come in here, we lift high the story of the cross and we lift high the story of the empty tomb because it is the cross and the empty tomb that prop us up in the middle of our suffering. And a note of caution here, you know, I, one of the things we've done well at Ethos, I believe, is, is there is this environment of authenticity. Sometimes we have to be careful because if we're not careful when we try to cultivate this culture of authenticity, if in our attempt to do that, we risk flipping the pattern that we see in Psalm 22. So remember the, the pattern in Psalm 22 was A, B, A, B. My circumstances, and but this is who you are, God. And if we're not careful, we can sometimes flip those. And sometimes what that looks like is I go, well, God, I've heard that you're good. God, I've heard that you love me, but this is what I'm experiencing right now and I don't see it. God, I've, I've heard that, that you are near and that you're faithful, but this is what my experience is telling me. And if we're not careful, we begin to let our circumstances dictate or define what God is like. And what we see the psalmist doing here is he names his circumstances, but the but is looking at who God is. 
Instead of looking at God through the lens of our circumstances, we allow the God of faithfulness to speak in to our circumstances. Does that make, make sense, the difference in those two things? And so I say we strive for authenticity, but here's the thing. Authenticity is not the opposite of faith. What we're longing for is an authentic faith, a place where complaint and lament can coexist with worship and faith and see what happens as we lean as we lean into the story of God, as we lean into the good news of the cross and the empty tomb in the midst of lament and complaint, what happens in us is nothing short of miraculous. It's the power of the gospel that we talked about last week. Remember Romans chapter one? The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And so this power comes into us and what happens is that in the midst of, of fear, we lean into the story of the cross and in the midst of fear, suddenly we feel something welling up within us and we're like, it's courage. Where did that come from? Where did that courage in the midst of fear come from? Or, or we find ourselves in, in the midst of pain and suddenly we're going, what is this? This is joy. There's joy inside of me, even in the middle of my pain. Like, what is that? We find ourselves in the midst of sorrow and suffering and, and all of a sudden we begin to feel this compassion and grace even towards the one who is inflicting the suffering upon us. It's mysterious, it's miraculous and it's, it's so powerful. There's the power of God within us. And we see this in Jesus, right? We go back to him on the cross and the statements that he makes from the cross. In Luke chapter 23, one of my favorite Verses Luke 23, 34, Jesus hanging there in agony. He looks down at the people that are inflicting the agony upon him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive these guys that just drove these nails through my wrist. Forgive this guy that I know is about to sick a spear in my side. Forgive those guys that flogged me and ripped open my back. God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. How in the world did Jesus move in such compassion in the midst of his own suffering? We see it again in John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. Jesus is hanging there on the cross in agony in the middle of his own pain. He's moved by compassion for his own mother. He looks down from the cross and he sees Mary standing there. And you know, we don't know what happened to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, but many speculate that he had died before this point because we don't see him there at the cross. And many speculate that Mary was a widow and if she was a widow, that meant she needs someone to take care of her. And here's Jesus hanging on the cross and he looks down at Mary standing next to his best friend, John. And he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. See, in the middle of his suffering, he's moved to have compassion on his mother. The woman standing before him, he wasn't so focused on his own pain that he couldn't have grace and mercy and compassion for others. You see, Jesus found this strength in the middle of his suffering because he kept his eyes and his mind and his heart on someone, something, this God, his father that was bigger, bigger than his suffering. And knowing his father and knowing his father's goodness prop, propped him up to be able to walk through his pain. You see, we don't have to run from or airbrush over the hardships of this world as followers of Jesus. No, to follow Jesus means that we enter into the suffering just like Jesus did. We, we don't polish over pain and suffering and come across as detached or aloof or clueless or lacking in compassion, but we enter into it with the people in our lives 
And when we enter into people's suffering, we call out the injustice as we see it. We wail and we grieve and we mourn and we lament. And we do all of this because we know that for the time being, we are trapped in a world that has not yet realized the hope that lies ahead. We are still experiencing the pain of the world around us while eagerly pressing on to the healing that is to come. And when we live in this way, it radically changes and transforms the suffering that we experience. We see this in the book of Acts, right? In the book of Acts, you got this guy named Stephen. Stephen literally, like his job in the church was to be a servant. He served widows and orphans. This is what he was, this is what he was known for. And yet one time he's arrested for preaching Jesus and he stands up, he gives this beautiful sermon about who Jesus is. And they begin to stone him. They drag him out of the city. And as he's standing there looking death in the eye with rocks flying at his face, he cries out to Jesus and he sees this vision of Jesus at the right hand of God. And he he declares that. And everyone gets more angry and they start throwing more rocks at him. And then he's moved by compassion. And just like Jesus, he says, God, do not hold this thing against them. How in the world does that happen? That in the middle of such suffering and pain, he has compassion on those who are inflicting it. We see it it all over and over again in the book of Acts. You know, in the book of Acts, you'll you'll find that John, the apostle John, his brother James is murdered by Herod, who, who gives the order to kill him with a sword. And yet John somehow keeps moving forward with the gospel, trusting in the goodness of God. And he, he penned some of the most meaningful and deeply moving letters that we have in our New Testament. You know, we don't just see it in these heroes of the faith in the Bible. I have seen this in real people in my life, people that I've known. I've already talked about my friend and his, and his mother and the way that she passed and the way they journeyed through that, allowing the, the hope of the gospel to prop them up in the middle of their pain. I remember two other friends that I had uh, a little under 10 years ago, they lost their firstborn son. After five minutes of life in the delivery room, they lo- lost their son, they watched him die in their arms. How, how, do you, how do you make it through that? How, how do you reconcile that kind of loss and pain? But let me tell you what they did. I'll never forget seeing them. They had a memorial service for their son, and there's this image that I was, they emailed it to me. It was this image that's just been etched into my memory of my friends sitting on the front row of the memorial service for their son with tears streaming down their face in pain and sorrow but with their hands lifted high in worship to God. Pain and lament right there coinciding with worship in great faith. And you know, they didn't, it wasn't over. It wasn't like they worshiped and immediately they felt better. They continued to walk in pain and suffering for months and years after that. But they also continued to walk in faith and in worship of the God that they believed to be good. And, I, and I've seen it in my wife. Some of you may know my wife. She doesn't come to the five very often. Um, if you've ever met my wife, I mean, she is, she's an amazing woman. And um, I don't know how much, if any of you know her, I don't know how much you know about her life story. But, you know, my, when we got married, I, I was moved to write a song for my wife. And I wrote this one line in the song that just said, You are to me a picture of my Lord and all the love that he gives. Because the more I got to know my wife and the more I got to know of her story, I was simply astounded at who the woman she was when we got married. You see, early in my wife's life, at a very young age, she was introduced to the pain of trauma at the hand of someone that should have loved her and should have protected her. And she had to walk through that for years. And then at the age of 15, she experienced the pain 
of loss from suicide as her dad took his own life. And she was left with her mom and her brother trying to figure out what in the world do we do with this? You know, the next few years of my wife's life were just unbelievably painful. And she, she made decisions trying to make sense of life and they were horrible decisions and she got into some really tough situations and, and bad choices. And I'll never forget, right after we got married, we were sitting down in the living room of our first house together and we're going through this box of hers and she pulled out this journal. And it was a journal that my wife wrote when she was 17 years old, just two years after she lost her dad. And she was at the height of some of her most deepest darkness at that point. And we opened up the journal and we're reading through it and I was shocked and astounded at what I read in this journal because my wife, at one of her lowest points, she's writing in this journal about how she wants to trust in God. And she's crying out to God and claiming God's characteristics in the middle of her pain and suffering. And I remember sitting in my living room reading that, just weeping and looking at Amy and saying, how in the world did you, how, how, how could you cry out to God in the middle of such loss and such pain? And, she reminded me of this passage that she used as kind of an anchor during these times of pain in her life. This is the passage I want us to end looking at tonight. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is page 804 if you're in one of our Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. She said this passage so many times was a passage she went back to to lean on when she needed hope, when she needed courage, when she needed faith. So in verse 8, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth. He says in verse 8, We are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Look in verse 16. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Though outwardly, the things we see out here in the world around us, outwardly we are wasting away, and yet inwardly, We are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. We fix our eyes not on the circumstances, not on the outward thing that is wearing us down, but no, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal Here you have the Apostle Paul. He's saying, listen, even though everything around us is caving in, even though every circumstance around us points to pain and suffering and sorrow around us, and yet we press on, we do not lose hope because the cross and the empty tomb are real. You go into verse five, he starts talking about the resurrection and the power and the hope of resurrection. And I know some of you might read this and you read these words where Paul says in verse 17, our light in momentary troubles. And I know when I read that, sometimes I'm going, Paul, what gives you the right? Like, don't you know the kind of suffering that people experience in this life? Who are you to, to say light in momentary troubles? But let me just tell you about this guy, Paul. If you don't know anything about him, if there's anyone who knew what suffering and pain felt like it was the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul, he was, he was stoned himself. He got stoned multiple times by others who hated the message he was preaching about Jesus. 
He was flogged and whipped and beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was abandoned by friends. He went hungry. He was put in prison more times than I know. Paul knew what it felt like to suffer. And yet in the midst of all that, he says, all of these things are light and momentary. And they pale in comparison with the glory that I know God has for me because of Jesus Christ and his cross and his empty tomb. See, we, the followers of Jesus, we must become familiar with suffering. This is part of life in this world. Peter, the apostle Peter said it this way. In in 2 Peter 4, he says, he says, listen, because Jesus suffered in the body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Arm yourselves with this attitude of suffering because when we arm ourselves with that attitude, there's nothing that the world can throw at us to knock us off kilter. There's nothing the world can throw at us when we are armed with the suffering that we see in Jesus. You see, the world out there, the world beyond our walls, it is full of people just like that Roman centurion standing at the foot of Jesus' cross. It's full of people who look around the world and they look upon the pain and the suffering around them and they're just trying to make sense of it all. And what the world needs is not a church full of people who look at suffering with them and then put on a cheesy smile and pretend that everything is okay. No, what the world needs is a church that knows how to enter into the suffering with them and in the midst of the suffering point to an eternal hope and glory that awaits for us because of a historical moment at a cross and an empty tomb. The world needs followers of Jesus who are fully alive, embracing our faith, even in the midst of calling out the suffering and the injustice for what we see in the world. You know, the rest of our time tonight, we're just going to do this together. We're going to spend time together learning how to rejoice and lament at the same time. Learning how to mourn and also celebrate in faith at the same time. Because here's what I know. There, there might be some of you in this room tonight that you've never experienced or encountered the, the living God. The God who suffers with you and the God who has conquered suffering for you. And I just encourage you tonight, if, if you have never experienced or encountered this God and you're in the middle of pain, or if you've never encountered this living God and you have doubts, just tonight, just be real about that. In a minute, we're going to go get a, a cup and, and a piece of bread, and it's just a reminder of the very real suffering that Jesus walked through for us. So if you've never met the living God, encountered the living God, or felt his love for you in the midst of suffering, just share that tonight. Say, I've never seen this. And I struggle with doubting to believe that this is true. But as you voice your doubt, as you voice your pain, as you voice your complaint about God, I just encourage you to also take a step towards it. Just try it. Just take a baby step. Uh, Whether it's saying a prayer or crying out in your own heart. Don't have to say it out loud with anyone else, but cry out in your heart to God. Or maybe let somebody else pray for you. Voice your doubt. Voice your complaint. But also be willing to take a baby step towards the God who knows your suffering. Some of you here tonight are followers of Jesus and you might be in the middle of some very real hard time, very real suffering, very real pain, and yet you haven't voiced it. You haven't let anyone know, and this could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe you thought you weren't supposed to. You thought as a follower of Jesus, you were supposed to have it together all the time. And this, if there's ever been a place where it's okay just to voice what is hard in your life, this is it. It's okay to share it. It's okay to voice 
complaint to God. And I encourage you to get with other believers, people that you know, and get that bread and get that cup and remember the God who suffers with you and the God who conquered suffering. And share where you need prayer in your life. And then the rest of us, some of us are in this place where maybe God has carried us through pain. Or maybe you're in that place where you've never experienced real pain or real suffering. And our, our job here tonight as brothers and sisters to those who are experiencing suffering is just to worship. That in the midst of our brothers and sisters suffering, it is good and honoring for us to worship God in the middle of their suffering because as we worship, we welcome Jesus to come into this place and we allow him to be the one to minister to those who are hurting that need the presence of God in their life right now. Let's be the church that walks through suffering and yet believes in the goodness and the grace of God. And let's do this tonight. Let's start it right now over communion. I'm going to pray for us. Will's going to come back up here. And let's just have a time of ministering to one another, being honest with one another, and yet leaning into our story of the cross and the empty tomb. Let's pray. God, thank you for our story. God, thank you that you are not a God that just looked from a distance and couldn't figure out why all these dopey humans couldn't get their act together and make it through the hardship of this world. But Lord God, you came down. Lord Jesus, you put on flesh. You walked in our midst. You experienced a suffering that most of us could never imagine. Thank you, God. Father, right now, I just ask as we move into a time of worship and response, Lord, would you join us as we commune with one another over the bread and over the cup? Would you be here with us? Commune with us, Lord. Give us the gift of your presence. Fill us with your spirit and minister to us through your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would speak into some hard things tonight. I pray that you would bring your life and your hope and your joy. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to enter into suffering with one another while at the same time calling out in faith to the God who has conquered our suffering. We love you, Lord. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.